This is Patrick Ridgel, and welcome to another edition of Market Pulse. Once again, I'm here with Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer Tom Wald. Hello, Tom. Hello, Patrick. Tom, it is it is really amazing how fast things can change when it comes to COVID-19. Um, I recall just a few weeks ago when we were having our last conversation, virus trends were at their lowest point since the early days of the pandemic. And in just these past few weeks, we've seen the Delta variant create a big resurgence in the number of cases we're now seeing. Uh, yes, Patrick. If you look at this past month, at least in terms of new virus case numbers, it's it's really been overwhelming and, of course, not in a good way. Uh, during the early days of July, total new case numbers were averaging only about 12,000 per day, which was about the lowest they had been since the early days of the pandemic back in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. In just these past six weeks or so, those numbers have exploded uh, more than tenfold. Uh, and we are now at more than 120,000 new cases per day on a rolling seven-day average. Mm-hmm. And that puts us very close to where we were back in late January of this year when case numbers were just off their worst levels of the pandemic. So we have been looking at a huge surge, uh, at, at least in the daily number of COVID-19 cases. Tom, what, in your opinion, is different about this Delta variant wave versus the first wave? Or, or perhaps I should say first few waves of the virus? Well, first of all, and, and thankfully so, the fatality rates uh, appear to be a good bit lower. Now, of course, any fatalities are tragedies, and, and one fatality is always one too many. Of course. Uh, and, and also, Patrick, what we keep hearing from the medical community is that the existing vaccines vaccines seem to be strong protectors against severe cases of the Delta variant. We are hearing uh, about breakthrough cases, fully vaccinated people contracting the Delta variant. But we have to remember, going all the way back to when the vaccines were first being developed, they were not designed so much to prevent actually contracting the virus, but to prevent fatalities and severe life-threatening cases of the virus. And that is what, so far, they appear to be doing. Data continues to support that well north of 99% of hospitalizations and fatalities from this new variant are among those who have not been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And while there have been some cases of fully vaccinated people being hospitalized and sadly in some cases dying from COVID, in percentage terms, it's tiny, as in less than one-tenth of 1% for hospitalizations and about one-one-hundredth of 1% for deaths. So, Tom, from an economic and market perspective, how, how do you go about assessing the potential impact of the Delta variant? Uh, well, well, there are a few things to immediately take into account. The first is, even with this sharp rise in cases we've been experiencing, I don't think we're going to be seeing anything like or anything even remotely close to being like the national shutdowns we lived through during most of last year. Okay. I, I just don't think there's going to be any appetite for that at at all, particularly among the fully vaccinated, who now account for about 50% of the total U.S. population and more than 60% of the adult population, who are being told their risk is basically infinitesimal. Uh, So will the Delta variant slow down some economic activity at the margin? Yes, it could. Uh, We're, of course, uh, seeing some return to mask mandates. And, you know, many large companies are now officially delaying their return to office schedules. 
But will the Delta variant create actual net contraction in the economy? I, I really don't think so. Yes, there certainly seems to be a completely different attitude and perspective as compared to the last time the virus numbers spiked. Yes. And what's really interesting, Patrick, is that if you go back to when COVID first arrived in the U.S. during March of last year and you draw out two lines next to each other, virus cases and U.S. GDP growth, you see a really amazing and increasing resilience of the U.S. economy to the virus, almost like an evolving economic immunity to the virus, pardon the pun. Okay. Uh, for, for example, when the virus first hit, it clearly shocked and blindsided the economy. In the second quarter of 2020, we experienced the worst single quarter of economic contraction since the Herbert Hoover administration, when GDP declined negative uh, 31% on an annualized basis. Then, even as COVID infections escalated in the summer of 2020, more than doubling from the initial levels, we rebounded sharply as businesses, corporations, and consumers adjusted to the work-from-home world, and GDP had its strongest individual quarter in our nation's history at plus 33% during the third quarter of 2020. Then, in the winter months of late 2020, and early 2021, when case numbers absolutely exploded, mm -hmm. reaching a high of more than 300,000 in one day, GDP growth still managed to come in at 4%, uh, positive 4% growth in the fourth quarter of 2020, which was followed by two 6% quarters in the first and second quarter of 2021. And now, as we are experiencing another major spike in cases, the Atlanta Fed is still tracking third quarter GDP at about plus 6%. And remember, this is all following a long-term trend of only slightly above 2% GDP growth for the entire decade leading up to COVID. So when you put this all together, the profile of the Delta variant and the economic endurance and versatility the economy has exemplified since the pandemic began, mm -hmm. it would be our judgment right now that the Delta variant and the related recent upsurge in COVID cases could wind up incrementally detracting from, but far from in any way derailing strong economic growth for the remainder of 2021 and continued above trend growth into 2022. How much could it detract from growth? Uh, well, great question. And on a, on a back of the envelope judgment, and I really don't think anyone has much more to work uh, with uh, than that right now. Uh, before the variant hit hard, I, I think we were looking at calendar year 2021 U.S. GDP growth in the range of 7% uh, or 8% versus 2020, which would have been the highest single year of economic growth since the early 1950s. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm expecting now closer to about an even 6% for the year, which mm -hmm. if achieved would still be the highest calendar year of economic growth since 1984. And I also think that could be followed up in calendar year 2022 with a 3 to 4% economic growth still noticeably above the pre-pandemic trend leading into last year. So even with some reduction in expectations, still very strong growth. Uh, yes, exceptionally strong growth. And, and just to put an exclamation point on this, Patrick, as of this recently completed second quarter, which ended in June, which the economy is estimated to have grown at uh, about 
We have now fully completed the much-anticipated V-shaped recovery by eclipsing the previous rolling 12-month aggregate GDP level achieved in the fourth quarter of 2019, back when COVID-19 was not even part of the national vernacular. And that's quite significant in my judgment, because if you recall, during the depths of the 2020 economic contraction, it was widely believed that we might not achieve such a recovery until, as many had said at the time, 2023 or 2024. So Mm -hmm. we've come quite a long way in just a year's time. And more importantly, the overall economy has now transitioned from a recovery to an expansionary mode. Now, of course, Tom, a, a natural result of this has been inflation, which we've talked a good bit about in some of our past discussions, but which continues to be the debate of the moment, if you will, in, in terms of whether it ultimately proves to be temporary or more permanent in nature. Yes, Patrick, that is the question pretty much on everyone's mind right now. Now, as we know, both monthly and year-over-year inflation reports have come in at multi-year and in some cases multi-decade highs over these past few months. Mm -hmm. The most recent July Consumer Price Index, or CPI report, came in at 5.4% for its headline reading, which was right at the same rate as June. And the core reading, excluding the more volatile food and energy components, uh, was at plus 4.3%, down a touch from the rate in June. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, this compares to pretty much a solid decade long trend of sub 2% inflation before the year began. Now, we see two factors as important and playing a key role as to why we think the rate of inflation will likely revert back toward the 2% range by early next year. One of them is just the mathematics of the base effects uh, we've talked about before. Uh, Inflation was extremely low for most of 2020, so the rate of change is exacerbated by this year's numbers. And that calculation will become a bit more friendly by the first few months of 2022. Uh, And what's even more important is that we continue to believe that most of the consumer price increases are coming from a handful of business areas most impacted by last year's shutdowns and most challenged in ramping up this year to meet the almost instantaneous demand. Uh, This would be businesses like used cars, car rentals, airline fares, hotels, and other types of lodging. So, for example, for July, these four components of core CPI I just mentioned, which account for only about 8% of the index, created more than 60% of that total core CPI increase, or about 2.8% of the 4.3% total increase. Mm -hmm. So as these handful of business areas eventually level off, so should the broader inflation inflation numbers. Uh, But that will probably take some time. And as a result, we would expect monthly inflation reports to continue running hot uh, for the next several months. Now, Tom, turning to the markets, stocks continue to move higher, even against this backdrop of the Delta variant and higher inflation. Uh, yes, uh, the stock train rolls on, Patrick. Uh, reports of its uh, potential derailment are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> we are now above a full-fledged doubling of the S&P 500 since the low point of last year's sell-off. Do you, do you think the market could be subject to some profit-taking, maybe? Uh, well, certainly that would only be human nature, given how far stocks have come 
And I'm sure nobody would really feel too foolish uh, in backing some gains at this point uh, after a better than 100% return in, in little more than a year's time. But, but, I, but I will say this, Patrick. In, in my opinion, part of making money in stocks is about realizing why. And sometimes in the simplest of terms, why stocks are going up and then not necessarily arguing with that. So when you look at uh, broad-based equities right now, you have extremely strong earnings growth, and those earnings expectations keep moving high. For calendar year 2021, uh, we're now looking at S&P 500 operating earnings growth of better than 40% versus 2020 and better than 20% versus their pre-pandemic previous record high in calendar year 2019. Uh, Mm Those strong earnings are being driven by, in large part, by improving profit margins, providing more operating leverage to higher revenues for corporations. And history also seems to be our friend right now in that over the past four recessions dating back to 1981, which include those beginning in 1990, 2001 and 2007, at the point in time that S&P 500 operating earnings surpass their pre-recession highs, as they're on the verge of doing right now, stocks have historically performed extremely well over the following three years. In fact, Mm -hmm. for the S&P 500, that would be at an average of about 19% annually for the following three years after those earnings recoveries following the past four recessions I just mentioned, representing a similar situation to where we are right now. And Longer-term interest rates remain quite low, so when comparing stock earnings yields to those long-term interest rates, stock valuations, in our judgment, continue to look more than reasonable. So I guess you could say one might look at this environment and be content uh, to stay on the train, so to speak. Not to say we couldn't have some bumps in the road or even a full-fledged market correction, for that matter, which would only be natural at this point. But if that were to come about, I think it would likely prove to be a real opportunity, uh, given some of the dynamics I just mentioned. So taking this all into account, Patrick, uh, we are maintaining what could be somewhat conservative uh, price targets on the S&P 500 of 4,600 by year end 2021 and 4,800 by mid-year 2022. Okay. Now, Tom, there's been a lot of talk about the Fed recently when they might taper their asset purchases and when ultimately they could raise interest rates. What are your thoughts here? Uh, yes, Patrick, it, it, it's it's very interesting. Up until recent weeks, I'd say my expectation was that the Fed would not begin uh, to reduce their monthly open market bond purchases, uh, which have been running at $120 billion per month uh, for almost a year and a half now until calendar year 2022. I think a predominant reason behind this was Chairman Powell's often reiterated criteria that policy would not change until the economy uh, had achieved, quote unquote, substantial further progress, uh, which has widely been interpreted to mean the labor market, where we are still about 5.7 million jobs short of where we were in February of 2020, just before the pandemic began. Mm -hmm. However, Uh, As we know, since the depths of last year, uh, when more than 22 million jobs were lost in just two months, uh, we have gained back more than 16 million jobs, uh, but the monthly pace has been inconsistent. 
Uh, we quickly added uh, 11 million at, at a rate of averaging about 2.8 million a month during the summer of last year. Uh, but then it uh, hit more of a rough patch, averaging less than 400,000 per month during the winter and spring, which is, which incidentally would be considered absolutely spectacular uh, by any other historical standards. But of course, when you're looking to regain 22.4 million in lost paychecks, the bar can get pretty high. Yeah. So those eight months uh, or so between September of last year and April of this year were actually considered a, a bit disappointing, believe it or not. Uh, and the thinking was the Fed would have to stay in the bond buying game until at least the end of the year. However, uh, these past two months, uh, June and July, the monthly job gains have come in extremely strong at better than 900,000 for each month. Uh, and we are starting to hear somewhat of a chorus of various Fed members publicly commenting to the effect of that the criteria of uh, substantial further progress is starting to be met and that a taper uh, should maybe begin sometime in the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. So I think if we got another month or two of job gains in August and September, similar to June and July, uh, that could certainly be on the table. Okay. Uh, so, Patrick, this is, of course, receiving inordinate amounts of market-oriented media attention and speculation. Uh, and it's easy to get caught up in the details of this emerging soap opera, uh, but I really think the bottom line is this. Whether or not the Fed begins to pull back its asset purchases in October, November, December, uh, January, or even sometime later in 2022, I don't think that will have a big impact on longer-term stock prices. Okay. Uh, this expected tapering has been so highly telegraphed by the Fed. Uh -huh. I, I really don't think there will be that much of an adverse reaction when it is finally announced uh, in the upcoming months. In fact, uh, there could even be a relief rally uh, when that announcement occurs. More importantly, Patrick, we are still, in my opinion, at least a year and a half away from the Fed actually raising its target range on the Fed funds rate. And that alone, in my opinion, is market-friendly monetary policy, given uh, the economic and corporate uh, earnings uh, fundamentals we just talked about. Now, Tom, Longer-term interest rates, which the Fed ultimately has little to no control over, have really been turning some heads in the past few months. Uh, yes, Patrick. One of the most surprising uh, developments of the past several months has been the volatility of longer-term interest rates, which have exemplified a most unusual path since a year ago at this time when the 10-year Treasury yield fell to its all-time low of just 0.52% in August of last year. Mm. In the several months following the mm. lows of last summer, longer-term yields moved sharply higher uh, and were reflecting an expansionary profile in the economy and the prospect of some degree of rising inflation along with it. So we saw what most believed to be uh, you know, a somewhat logical and rapid ascent all the way up to 1.75% of the 10-year yield uh, by the end of the first quarter. However, since that time, longer-term yields took a serious nosedive, falling all the way uh, to an intraday low of about 1.13% uh, earlier this month. Uh, this rapid and unexpected descent in longer-term yields really had a lot of quote-unquote experts uh, feeling confused and, and, and wondering what could be causing such a counterintuitive move in yields. Uh, while several short-term factors have been cited, such as 
the differential between U.S. and overseas government yields, you know, which, by the way, is nothing new. Uh, and uh, pension fund rebalancing following the strong gains in stocks. It would be our assessment that the recent downward moving yields reflects the bond market's opinion uh, that economic growth may fall short of current expectations or that the Fed might make a policy error in fighting inflation too soon and therefore stall out the economy by raising short term rates too early. In other words, uh, Patrick, the stock and bond markets uh, are coming to two very different conclusions as to uh, how they are pricing in economic growth and Fed policy. Mm -hmm. So we will take the other side of this argument from the bond market right now. We believe economic growth will be strong in the year ahead and believe ultimately longer term rates uh, will reverse their recent course. And uh, we see the 10 year yield uh, challenging uh, 2% in the year ahead. That's a fascinating situation, Tom. Is there anything else to watch right now? Uh, yes. Congress is on the verge of potentially passing more than $4 trillion in new infrastructure spending legislation, the bulk of which uh, will be coming from a budget reconciliation package requiring only a simple majority along party lines. In that bill, funding for potentially $3.5 trillion is expected to be tied directly to tax hikes on corporations and individuals in the top in income brackets, as well as a big rise in capital gains tax rates at the $1 million threshold and the elimination of the step-up in basis treatment on inherited assets also at the million-dollar mark. If passed in their entirety, uh, this could create a drag on economic growth, all else being equal, of course. Uh, and perhaps a bit of heartburn for the markets and probably some big time headaches for quite a few investors. So clearly something to keep a close eye on as this potentially moves through Congress in the months ahead. So, Tom, we've covered a lot here and perhaps we can conclude with a quick review for our listeners. Let's start with the Delta variance market impact. Yes, the Delta variant has unfortunately resulted in widely escalating virus cases. But right now, we see it as only having a marginal impact on the economy when all is said and done. And your overall view on the economy? Uh, we are looking for economic growth of about 6% in calendar year 2021 and perhaps about 3 to 4% in 2022, with inflation continuing to run hot for the next several months, but settling back uh, toward 2% uh, by the early parts of 2022. How about your outlook on stocks? Uh, we continue to see lots of good things going on for stocks, such as rising earnings trends, strong corporate profitability, valuations when taking into account the interest rate environment, and what history tells us about earnings recoveries following uh, the end of recessions. And if we do get a correction in this current environment, it will likely, in our opinion, be a buying opportunity. Uh, we have a one-year S&P price target uh, right now at 4,800. Fed policy and interest rates? Uh, the Fed might actually taper asset purchases a little earlier than uh, initially expected, but not a big deal considering they're still at zero on the Fed funds rate. And we ultimately see the 10-year Treasury yield reversing its recent downward trend and uh, heading towards 2% uh, year ahead. Tom, like I said, a lot we have covered here today. 
Uh, this is really a great roadmap regarding what investors need to know and look out for in the next several months and beyond. Again, thanks for taking us through this most recent edition of Market Pulse. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. Economies and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected. Economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global and or international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Delta Shares Exchange Traded Funds. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. 265-617.